The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey everybody, Gabby Reese here. Please join me for my show where we're going to be talking about all things self-care. And I don't mean just eating and exercise. I'm talking stress, marriage, relationships, parenting, business, transitions. How do we figure out a way to be our best selves each and every day? So whether you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen, please join me. If you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. Today marks Looking Up's last guest of season two. As always, next week, I'll be hosting a brief recap of this last season. We'll have a very short week break to digest Thanksgiving meals and, well, these very potent concepts. And then season three of Looking Up airs on Monday, December 7th. Okay, let's get to it. I think it's about time we work on changing how we think about getting older. So many of us have a negative view on the aging process. And many of us are always trying to find ways to escape it. Instead of thinking about aging as something aesthetically unappealing or a process in which we are mourning for our youth, we should start to understand that aging is about accruing wisdom and getting closer to the power of prioritizing our own thoughts and energy. When surveyed, many young people say that aside from the physical attributes of aging, they fear memory loss the most. What if we found out that aging process allows us to refine our skills in selective memory training, and it isn't really all about loss. It's actually about gaining a new skill, the skill of prioritizing what we choose to remember, and actually the power of choosing to make positive memories last the longest. A recent Stanford study revealed that the elderly population is actually happier than any other age population. While they might not remember names as well as younger people, by the way, research shows that name recognition peaks in our 30s. New research into cognitive functioning shows that the aging brain has an uncanny ability to focus on the positive in life. As we age, our goals tend to change and so does our memory. My guest on today's episode of Looking Up is UCLA professor, memory researcher, and author of the book Better With Age, Dr. Alan Castell. We talk about seeing versus noticing, selective memory versus all memory, and how one of the most potent forms of learning is actually through mistake. We discuss how our expectations of aging can deeply impact how we actually age. And well, he makes me feel so much better about my mom brain memory loss over these past few years. This episode is full of aha moments and practical things we can all start to do right now to keep our memories strong and help us even look forward to aging. Oh, and one thing I learned that doesn't really help with memory, taking a picture. So next time you want to recall an experience or remember a beautiful piece of art, keep your phone in your pocket and spend a few extra moments just taking it in. You'll remember it more, I promise. I like to ask my guests just a series of some very quick rapid fire questions that 
sort of serve as a way to a have some fun and b for myself and the listeners to get to know you a little more intimately and sort of pass just the amazing, wonderful things professionally that you do. All right. Fire away. Okay. So Dr. Castell, is there a book that you have read that has actually changed the way in which you live your life? I think one book that was very influential for me was The Mature Mind, uh, The Power of Positive Thinking in the Aging Brain. And that certainly has motivated the research and even my own book. So it really made me think more seriously about how our brain changes as opposed to declines as we age. Exactly what I want to talk to you all about on this episode, which I'm so excited about. Okay. People think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. I'd say people probably get the impression I'm reserved when I'm actually pretty outgoing once I get started. Are you Canadian? <laughs> you got it. Was it was it the about or the reserved? Yeah. The about, the about. <laughs> yeah, I've been here almost 15 years, so I've, I've lost the most of it. I still use the metric system every once in a while. But. Use three words to describe yourself as a teenager in the high school years. Oh, that's a tough one. Let me think. Energetic, Canadian. And uh, probably naive. Those are good ones. Okay. When is the last time that you cried? I definitely can get emotional at bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, any coming of age event. Mm. Yeah. So that's definitely probably the last time. Um, And without too much thought or judgment, three things that have brought you joy today. Certainly when I hear my children laugh, that brings me joy every day. I actually surprisingly enjoy gardening or when I went on a walk and uh, I've tried to start playing harmonica. So I'm not sure if that's joy or frustration. But <laughs> it's, a, it's a new thing for me. Oh, that's so cool. I remember uh, getting a harmonica when I was a kid and how excited I was. And I just learned how to play like hot cross buns and it stopped there. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to tinker with and you can even do it while you're walking so you don't annoy your family too much. <laughs> In the wide open. Exactly. Are you an optimist? I try to be. I think life presents us many challenges, and it's really how we interpret these challenges, you know, thinking of them as tests. And I think if you look back on anyone's life, and the longer their life is, the more challenges they've had to overcome. If you think of optimism in terms of looking on the bright side, I think my daughter, my seven-year-old daughter once said, you know, that glass half empty or half full, she said, it's half full with room for more. I like that. that. You're always looking for a new opportunity. And even when you are tested, kind of emerging from it with a a new perspective can be really, I think that's optimism. Being that this podcast is about optimism and resiliency, I feel like I need to have your seven-year-old daughter as a guest. That's brilliant. (laughs) I love that. I think our children can certainly enlighten us every once in a while and remind us, you know, of the positives because there's a lot in this world to analyze and navigate. And I think sometimes keeping it simple is really important. I agree. I'm so excited to jump in to this topic of aging and memory and just about our brain with you. One of my favorite things in one of your TED Talks was sort of how you start with these examples of almost like brain tricks. And they're illustrating how our brain makes up for gaps and I talk about this a lot in terms of our brain creating like efficiencies and shortcuts and 
a lot of times our brain sees something faster than our visual cortex actually sees it and sort of makes up for it. And you have some pretty cool examples that you show in some of your talks. Is there any like exercise that you could start with that would work audio and maybe it's the Apple icon thing or? I think that's a good example. I think our brain is not really wired to take in every bit of information there is that we're exposed to. And in some ways that's a good thing. Although we're always concerned that our memory doesn't allow us to remember everything, I think what's important is to be selective. And that might actually be something that gets better with age. So one example I give is we all know the Apple logo. We see it all the time. You might even see it right in front of you on your computer. But if I ask you to close your eyes and really try and imagine where is the bite? Is there a stem? Is there a leaf? You start to realize you don't actually know it as well as you think you do. And that's just an illustration that our visual memory is not designed to encode every detail, especially if it's irrelevant. And it's almost this trick that the more you see something, the less you notice. I think people are starting to appreciate that, you know, with COVID and you're walking in the neighborhood, you're doing all the same things you do and you, you just fail to notice, like, was that tree always there? Or, mm-hmm. You know, have I missed this beautiful, you know, bush or things that we just take for granted? So I think that's, that's, I'm not sure if it's an optimal design from a computer artificial intelligence standpoint, but I think it's something we work well with. And as I talk about in my book, might actually get better as we get older. I think that's so interesting. It kind of is like, is it similar to sort of this example of when we all used to, I mean, I'm in LA, so we all used to drive to work all the time, or maybe people had the same route, you know, whether it was, you know, to a specific errand task or work you often get there and realize, I have no idea how I just got here, but I just got here because our brain had was on autopilot sort of, or we just didn't have to tend to that because our brain already created sort of a fast pathway and how to get there. And now we're sort of tending to other things. Yeah, absolutely. We're monitoring our own mind and thoughts and daydreams and working out dilemmas in our heads. So that commute to work, um, all these things we see all the time get zoned out. And I don't think it's a bad thing. So just because you can't remember the Apple logo doesn't mean you have a bad memory. If anything, it means you're probably directing your attention to the things that matter most. Um, Of course, there can be costs. And I think on on this topic of distraction, you know, sometimes people are driving and they forget that they have their infant in in the back of their car. Their infant's fallen asleep. Now you're on autopilot. You're driving to work. You go to work you go into your office building and you can forget your infant in the backseat of a hot car. And it's, um, it's the kind of thing you could never imagine yourself doing, right? right? We're all responsible parents, but it happens dozens of times every year and unfortunately can lead to fatalities. That's so true that, I mean, I have not forgotten my infant in, in my car, but there's many times that I've, you know, just been doing something that I always do and I'm sort of distracted and I'm going with it and I've definitely forgotten important things. Um, and I guess I can see how that happens. Yeah, it's, it's uh, of course, scary and concerning, but I think it illustrates this point is sometimes we're not even aware of these blind spots, partly because we're so hyper-focused on our thoughts or you know, where we're going. We're very goal-directed. And so I think this is also part of being present, um, sometimes mm-hmm. slowing down appreciating what's happening in your environment, being careful. And uh, these might be things that we do have control over, but um, when we're distracted or focused on other things, we stop noticing the world in front of us. There's this new sort of, I don't want to call it a mantra, but a new sort of way of thinking over the past year that I've been trying to do 
especially in moments that feel kind of just mundane or I know that I can slip into this autopilotness and it's this sort of notion of of trying to be curious and it's interesting because I will be you know walking the same path I always do or even things in my home and I'm noticing things around me and in my home and just the quality of the way the light hits at certain points or things that like have always been there and have always happened, but I just didn't notice. And that kind of reminds me of an example that you also were illustrating at UCLA and it was with the fire extinguishers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's another illustration of this kind of habituation. You stop noticing things you see all the time. And this time, instead of focusing on an Apple logo, which we see all the time, we notice that people don't know the locations of a fire extinguisher that's been in kind of their view for 10, 20, even 30 years. Some people who've worked in the same office building, we asked them if they knew where the nearest fire extinguisher was while they were in their office. And they kind of thought, well, it's probably by the elevator or maybe it's down on the first floor. And then we, instead of telling people, well, you know, you didn't get it right. We did something that I think is really important and it's called errorful learning. We asked them to go and find it. And so they then walked out of their office and noticed, oh, it's right there. Oh, it's down the hall. Or there's three of them. There's one in each corner. Maybe in one striking case, it was right outside one person's office. So they'd had this office for 25 years and (laughs) seen it there all the time, but they didn't notice it. So I think this subtle distinction between seeing and noticing is important. And that's a very potent learning event. And it's not something I think we're prone to do. We want to get the answer right away. We want to Google it. We want to find out right now. There's ways that we can, we can really learn well, but it's sometimes through making these mistakes. And then when we followed up with these same people three months later, everyone remembered where the fire extinguisher was. And hopefully they'll never need it, but I think we're prone to thinking we'll know something when we're not tested. And then when we are tested, that's when we, our, our blind spots are revealed. So I like to think of it, it's better to learn these things when the stakes are low of course, when there's not a fire or when your child is, you know, in the back seat and now you're aware of it. So you can have strategies in place. And one strategy going back to the infant in, in the car seat is sometimes you keep your laptop in the back seat so that you have to go to the back seat to get your computer. Then you realize your infant's there. And that example, I think most people still think it's crazy because of course it couldn't happen to them. They care so much about their children or they're so focused, but it happens to younger people, older people, people, highly skilled people. It's just the way we work. Um, We're distracted, we're focused. And um, I think the more we're aware of that, the better we can be to avoid these sorts of errors. There's two really like big points in, in what you just said that I think are so key and have got me thinking. And one of them is that, yes, the difference between seeing and noticing. And then the second one is learning through error. So we learn better sort of, or it sticks more when we learn something through error, mistake, or problem solving rather than just Googling the answer or being told what it is. And so I think that's so interesting. And that kind of makes me think a lot about raising children and sort of having them learn something by experience. And even though, you know, oftentimes I have a three-year-old and I'm asking him a question or playing with him And I might know the answer to it. Obviously, I'm leading. I'm just saying like, oh, well, you know, when he was younger, we'd say like, which of these are, you know, the same as the other? And I may know the answer, but it doesn't really serve him well if I'm showing him, maybe just allowing him to 
either make a mistake and and learn from it or problem solve and get there on his own. And so you're saying that the brain actually learns better that way and it sticks more. It's definitely more memorable and it engages probably more learning processes than just being told the answer or Googling the answer. And it can be as simple as, you know, your child asks you, how do you spell circle? Mm -hmm. You could, of course, tell them or you could have them guess. And you learn a lot, too, because by looking at the mistakes they make, you can have a better idea of how to teach them. And this is there's some cultural differences here that in different cultures, they're more interested in the mistakes people make so that the lesson can be then catered around that. Whereas in, in other cultures, and including our own, we're more focused on get it right. and keep Right, it, or memorization. Memorization, and, and then we can move on to the next thing. And if you think back on the challenges you've had in your life, whether in graduate school or as a younger person, mm-hmm. I remember the mistakes. Sometimes they're <laughs> crushing mistakes, but I, growing up in Canada, I remember licking the, the railing outside our house because it had uh, fresh snow. That just, of course, I'm thinking, what better way to ingest the snow than licking it off a rail? Um, and of course, my tongue stuck to the rail. So I, I learned an important lesson about physics. And, um, <laughs> and I still remember my parents having to you know, bring hot water out and unstick my tongue. And I'm sure every child in cold weather has learned that way. But uh, you know, that's a learning lesson. And it's uh, eventful and important. And even turning to my own children, you don't want them to make mistakes. You want them to avoid pain and suffering. But my daughters will ask me, one of their favorite games is to ask me, tell me about mistakes you made when you were little. Mm. And I think they want to hear about the mistakes their parents made, possibly to avoid them, but also show that we all make mistakes and we learn from them and we grow. And that's why I think my interest in aging and studying older adults is so uh, rewarding to me, at least, is because they'll share these stories. And, you know, some of them are mistakes, some of them are triumphs, some of them are just little bits of insight that you might not appreciate. And as a parent now, you probably appreciate more of the parenting your parents did now. Right. The challenges, the decisions they had to make. And I think as we get older, we're, we're more aware of these things. I feel like there are just tons of notions on what happens when we age. And I would argue that probably most of them are negative or what we think of. And I'm hoping that that's not all true and that there are some myths in this that we can bust right now. What are some common myths about you know, aging that you have found that are just not true? Well, you're exactly right to begin with. Most people, especially younger people, have negative attitudes and stereotypes about aging. And I ask students in my classes at UCLA, give me 10 words that describe an older person. And, you know, and I ask them to be honest. And a lot of them are fairly negative words, Um, slow, grouchy, grumpy, smelly, frail, But some of them are positive, or some of them are neutral. You got Florida, jazz, (laughs) wisdom. That's one of the you know few positive ones. But the truth is, as we get older, there's some interesting things that happen. And you might think of older adults as being grouchy or depressed, but some research shows that uh, in terms of levels of happiness or especially life satisfaction, if you're healthy and older, you have higher life satisfaction than people in in their middle age. And we often think of, you know, old age as being a, a challenging time, and it certainly can be for a variety of reasons. But older adults show some positivity and are very reflective and don't have as much regret as younger adults might think. So I think that's one, if it's a myth, it's certainly a, a viewpoint that might not 
be accurate. And the other, I think, maybe not necessarily a myth, but our expectations can influence how we age. And a lot of this work is correlational, but people who have positive attitudes about aging tend to age well. And it's tough to do the exact experiments that you'd want to do, but I've tried to do this in my classes at UCLA, is look at people's expectations regarding aging before they take my class on psychology of aging, where we do emphasize a lot of the challenges, but positive things that happen as you age. And you find people's expectations change quite a bit. And I think that's important, as we talked about earlier, in terms of positivity and optimism. Mm-hmm. You know, no one wants to look old necessarily, and we spend a lot of time hiding our wrinkles or gray hair or bald spots. And so there's certainly some physical things, but I think when we think of maturity or if we look at someone who's been married for 30 or 40 years, that's, those are our old age mentors. And I, I really think if we have good mentors about aging, we can have a positive approach to aging. So that's part of the message in my book is to outline some mentors for successful aging, what it means to age well, what are some of the myths? Because some of those stereotypes certainly have some validity. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's always the reality. And there's a lot we can do to ensure that we age well if we're well equipped to understand how attitudes influence aging. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I'm sure there's a lot of cultural differences at play, too. I know for me, my background is I'm Indian. And in our culture, the elders are the wise ones and sort of the most respected. Having that mentality at home and then growing up here and just seeing the different views of other people with their great-grandparents or grandparents and, and sort of how that is in America, it was just very different. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important observation. And, you know, in the U.S. and in certain cultures, there's not as many households where grandparents are living with grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Or, and some of that is for financial reasons. But mm-hmm. it's almost like here, if you save enough money in retirement, then you can live independently and then live in a senior's home. Right. And, whereas in other cultures, but also cultures that are well represented in the United States, it would be absurd to ship off a parent to another person to take care of. And I think that's important for to respect older people, but it also plays a role for the, the parents and the grandchildren because I was very impressed and impressioned by my grandparents in um, Florida, but also in Australia. I saw the challenges they encountered, but they also shared with me really important life stories, some, some of my family history that my parents didn't even share with me. And just by exposure to them and seeing you know, their sense of humor and their perspective on life, but also these stories they shared and I hope they were accurate stories, <laughs> but I certainly got to know my grandparents a little bit better, even though I didn't get as much time as I would have liked to have with them. And I think that's important. It influences how we age and our expectations regarding how we age. My maternal grandfather, he's 94 and he lives, you know, just a few minutes away from my family. And he goes for a walk every morning before the pandemic, he would go to the gym and lift weights. He paints every day. He has published six books on his own. And these are all after retirement, well after. I mean, these are the things he was doing in his 80s and 90s. So it's, I think, having a positive example of someone, and we don't all get that luxury or privilege to, but having that does actually shape my view on aging. I really wanted to ask about, there was this Stanford study done on the positivity bias and older adults. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is really landmark research to show that 
as memory changes as we get older, it's not a decline necessarily. I mean, there's certainly things that do decline and it can be harder as we get older to remember certain things. But this work, primarily done by Laura Carstensen and Mara Mather, who's now at USC, looked at differences, it just kind of different approaches to how we process information. And, and the take home message is that there's differences. When we're younger, we might focus more on negative information. And that might be beneficial, you know, to protect yourself and to make sure that you can avoid certain things. As we get older, and it might be based on some awareness of a limited lifespan that we're, you know, we know we only have 10, 20 years left. How do we change our focus? And older adults, especially healthy older adults, will focus more on positive information. This can certainly influence then later how we remember things, but it can also influence mood, as we talked about earlier. So that could be a mechanism that gives rise to why older adults might have more positive affect or positive mood. It's a choice. You're focusing mm -hmm. on the positive things. And of course, you can watch the news and find all sorts of negative things happening in the world. But it's what we remember and it's what we report to other people and the discussions we have. And so I think these are some of the myths as we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. Even though we might think of older adults as you know grumpy or sad or depressed, then when you talk about your grandparents, that's in stark contrast to the stereotype. Right. And then when we talk about memory changing, even though there might be some decline, more of a focus on positivity, well, that also shows that there are important changes that might actually be beneficial and can lead to these important insights about what it means to get older. And I think when you tell this to college students, sometimes they're surprised. And so I think the earlier we learn this in life, not that you should then just be so excited to be 90 <laughs> or, you know, but be aware that there are things you can do when you're younger or that you might not have this positivity bias yet. But, you know, if you it might, it might come, it might come. So if you know, what I'm actually struck by is this dip in the midlife, where it's not necessarily a midlife crisis, but it's a just that there's not as much life satisfaction or positivity, and it can be a very challenging time in your life. You're raising children, you might be changing jobs, you might be worried about financial things, especially now during COVID. But knowing that if you can emerge through one of these really challenging times in your life, that if you stay healthy and active and intellectually curious, old age can be a really good time in your life. That things will look up. Potentially, yeah. And yeah. I think if you have a negative attitude, then you think, gosh, this is supposed to be the best time in my life or college right. is supposed to be the best time or, you know, I have this new car, I should be happy. And I think we realize as we get older, it's not necessarily material things, it's our connections to our family, the people we care about. And those are the things we really do cultivate as we get older. That is so interesting. And you're right. I think most people on the whole are not excited about aging. And like you say, it's not necessarily like forget all your life and, and just count on when you're 90, you'll be the happiest. But there is some solace or relief in knowing that there is something better that can come and, and with aging. And this is one of the things, this positivity bias that can happen. And whether it's from, you know, selective memory and things happening in the brain, or whether it's actually the sort of accruance of wisdom and kind of being able to know really what's important and what's valuable because you've lived so much life looking at it from that lens, and I'm thinking about the people that are elderly in my life, I really do see that. And another thing I really see with people of that age that seems like that is exacerbated is when they have a sense of community. Yeah, I think that's important. And sometimes, you know, when we talk about what are the secrets to aging well, 
we often think of having good genes or eating well, and those are all important things. But I think from a psychological perspective, the people you're around play a really important role. I think one reason maybe as we get older, we might be happier or have more life satisfaction is that we have more balance. Mm. I think that's a real challenge in midlife. And especially when we're younger, even though we have, you know, we might be faster or stronger, we might not have the same balance or perspective when we get older. And it's, it's one message I like to leave listeners with is that balance, both physical and mental balance is really important to, to maintain. And if you can stay active and stay on your feet, that's, that's kind of the first step. And I test people and ask them, what are your concerns? And they always say memory. But if I said, you know, if you could test your balance, you might not be aware that your balance isn't as good as you think it is. And then when you get out of bed, you trip over something, it's hard to regain your balance. So one tip an older adult told me is, now I do it too, when you brush your teeth in the morning or at night to stand on one leg and test your balance for one minute on one leg and then try the other leg. And I notice some days I'm better at it than others, but it's something I thought I could do no problem. Mm. But these, these little challenges, I think if we can train ourselves, can really allow us to live a long and healthy life. You know, in one of the previous interviews, we were talking a lot about how the brain seems to more vividly recall negative memories than positive ones. And it's something that is so important. And you're echoing that too, for us to really put the effort and, and the work into you know, solidifying those positive experiences that happen and sort of marinating in them and, and giving them some time and space too, because we see in the research for optimism and, and resiliency and joy and happiness that that's actually a very important piece of it. And so it may not come natural and it may not be what's on autopilot, but we do need to create some new rituals and exercises or mental training to do that. And it could be like a couple seconds in the day. Absolutely. I think emotional memories can be very vivid. They can even be you know, emotional memories from a long time ago or even just a bad meal you had. But I think on a day-to-day -day basis, there's so many good things that happen to us, even just getting out of bed in the morning and not tripping and falling on the way mm -hmm. to the bathroom. Just the simple things in life, hearing other people laugh, cry. If you have a pet, I think we're learning a lot during COVID that there's a lot of simple things in life that we should be grateful and, and thankful for. But there are always going to be these major challenges that we shouldn't just simply forget. But I think if we learn from them and know how to navigate life, that's, that's optimism and that's successful aging. How do you think that memory has been affected or is being impacted with the rise of new technologies and social media? I think there's so many benefits to having access to the internet and huge knowledge bases and sending quick emails. On the flip side, it can lead to this constant distraction. And I think that's probably if there's one thing that limits our memory, it is distraction. I find I can be, if I'm focused on needing to remember something, I need to put my phone down and I need to look at the person in the eyes that I'm talking to. And my wife notices that too. I mean, she'll, she'll know I'm telling you something, but you're not going to remember it because you're distracted or you're thinking of something else. So I think distraction can take many forms when you're driving. We're, you know, constantly, you know, monitoring phones and children and other things. And I think it's interesting as we get older, I've noticed, you know, older people when they're distracted, there's real costs. But I think there's this, the wisdom might be is not to get distracted or, or be a little more present. So, um, you know, when you're driving, turn off your phone. You know, it doesn't matter if you get the text message now or when you get there. Or even my 
my father-in-law who's over 90 would tell the kids when he drove his grandchildren around not to talk to him <laughs> while he was driving. <laughs> driving. Thought, yeah. And I thought that's a perfectly good example <laughs> of, I don't want to be distracted because I want to make sure I'm safe in the car. You know, it's not something everyone needs to follow obviously, but I think, you know, we check our phones constantly. And when we see one person check their phone, it's we're, we, we're imitation driven and we check right. our phone and, um, so I think there's definitely costs. It's become the autopilot piece of our whole entire lives. I know I, there are so many times I caught myself when I was driving, you know, at a stoplight and just like automatically picking up my phone. I didn't even mean to. I had nothing that I needed to do or look at, but it became like a just a habit, not being able to just sit at a red light anymore. Like you have to be doing something. And it really takes it's back to that, like being present. And I think that's so interesting that even being present and practicing a mindful sort of attitude throughout the day is actually a really good way to increase memory. Yeah, I think distraction plays such a big role in forming memories. Um, but I think what's impressive is if we're focused or present, we, we can remember the things that are really important to us. And I think that's, if there's a take home message as we get older, certainly memory can decline, but I think we do have some control over the remembering process as we get older, especially if we're focused on what's important to us. And mm -hmm. that means either limiting distractions or using strategies to remember the things we think are important, even just writing things down. Um, those are some of the basic things that we can do effectively and might even be more effective when we're aware that our memory might be changing. Are there any things that we can proactively do in our 30s or 40s to kind of keep our memory sharp? You know, I know part of it, it sounds like, is you know, having long periods of time where you're not distracted and kind of focusing on one thing at a time and practicing more of mindful uh, moments rather than the world that we live in right now, which feels like it's constant multitasking. Like I know for myself going from, I know I have a task to do, I have it in my mind. And then all of a sudden I'm doing four other things and I cannot remember what I meant to do in the first place. And then I'm just thinking about what that was. And then I haven't finished the other three things. And it just feels like that has become life. Well, it, sound, it sounds like you're a parent. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I think the first thing is just to acknowledge those things. You know, you're a busy person, you're juggling a lot of things. And I think to prioritize what's important. I mean, we certainly don't need to remember everything. And you could send that email now, or you could, I'm sure in my mind, I've sent so many emails in my head that I thought I've sent. And then it's only at night when I'm about to go to bed that I realize, oh, I haven't sent that, or I thought I did it. And that's, it's almost when you're relaxed and a little more peaceful, you're aware of what you did, what you didn't do, what you should do. So probably incorporating some of those, like, let's just stop for a minute or two and reassess where we're at, decide we're not going to get everything done today what's important, what can I do? And then, you know, try and execute those things. And I, I sometimes just make short lists of really, what do I have to do this week? Like if I can only do three or four things, what things would I really like to knock out? Mm. And I sometimes go back to those lists and I see, I don't get them all done, but I get two or three of those big things done. Or sometimes I get all of them done, or sometimes I get none of them done, but they're there. And so they're not just lurking around in my head, they're somewhere. So, I find making these lists or putting things down on paper can be very helpful, partly so you don't forget, but it also gives you goals. And it is kind of nice to look back a month or two later, hey, I got all that done. You know, I, I can do these things. What's so interesting and makes me feel better in this conversation is that I was someone that 
you know, I was one of those people. And I think my son is that he's three, but everyone would always be like, oh my gosh, your memory is so crazy. Like you could, I could remember things from, you know, four years old, five years old, and in such detail, pretty much my whole life um, until I became a parent. (laughs) Same with when I was in grad school, I never took notes, but I could repeat everything that the professor said, including the pauses. Like, I don't know what it just would happen. And then I became a parent and I started thinking about the other day, I was like, I like, there's so many things I forget. I can't remember even, you know, when I've met someone, I can remember our whole conversation, but I can't remember their name. I'm like, what is happening with my memory? And then after this conversation, I'm kind of thinking, well, I have a lot more at stake right now. And my brain has a lot more to process and to give uh, attention and intentional capacity to that. Maybe some of those things that sure, they were great to remember. And maybe it was a nice party trick but my brain just doesn't have the space for them. And that's kind of okay. It doesn't mean anything negative or bad, but it just means I have a lot of other stuff to tend to and to use the energy on. Absolutely. And that's our research at UCLA really looks at this selectivity process of how you can selectively remember what's important. The flip side is just not doing or not attending to, or not being able to remember later these smaller things that sure they'd be helpful and kind of neat party tricks if you can remember everything. But I think that's this idea of metacognition, of being aware of how your cognitive function works. And and the the best way to be aware of how something works is to find out when it doesn't work. Mm. So I've had some huge memory mistakes. You know, I forgot a passport or a wallet or just things that I'm like, oh, why did that happen? And it's usually something I was distracted or I was worried about something else or I put something in one place because I thought I'd remember it there. And I learned from those mistakes, but I also learned that I'm not going to remember everything. And sure, that changes with age, but I think your awareness now that you can't remember everything like you used to, what are you going to do about it? You're not going to now try and remember everything again. You're really going to say, well, what are the three things that I need to remember today or that, you know, if I forget are going to have the biggest consequences? I love that. And so it's not really about being forgetful. It's about being selective. And my brain's actually doing that for me because I have a lot more that I care about and that are at stake and that are in my responsibility right now. I think that's an important realization and it can take, you know, months, years to to adapt to these things. And sure, if you got a better night's sleep, you probably would remember more things. And if you weren't Mm -hmm. as distracted, you would remember more. So it's almost like which route are you going to take? But we know you can't just magically get those extra two or three hours of sleep or put your phone down for a few hours at a time. So I think as humans, we're very good at adapting and we learn from our mistakes and hopefully those mistakes are not crushing. But if they are, you know, how are we going to move on? That's so important. And as we wrap things up here, what's looking up for you? I know that you have a new book out called Better With Age. And if you want to talk a little bit about what you sort of hope people get from this book and also other things that you're personally hopeful about and and you're looking up towards? Well, I wrote the book to discuss how memory and other things can change with age, but not just get, you know, worse and not get better, but really change. And I think memory, retirement, brain training, all of these things are important issues as we get older. So the book focuses both on the emerging technology, the myths, the data, the science, and also, as we talked about earlier, the mentors. You know, when you think of aging, do you immediately feel negative? Or what's your subjective age? How old do you feel? We usually ask people, you know, it's a faux pas, even ask someone how old they are. 
But if a doctor at your next physical exam said, well, instead of telling me how old you are, how old do you feel? Oftentimes, healthy people feel you know, 10 to 20% younger than their actual age. And that's telling because our subjective age is a better predictor of how long we'll live mm. than our chronological age. So I think that's the power of psychology. So in this book, I, I talk about mentors and you might have a grandparent or a, you know, someone, a public figure that you could think of that would immediately remind you, hey, wait, there are some benefits to aging and I could achieve that if I did these things. And I think I talk about the ABCs of aging and, and the first is staying active and being able to adapt, being active physically and mentally. B is balance, as we talked about already, both physical and mental balance is incredibly important, especially as we get older. And the last one, C, is connection. And I think from a psychological standpoint, that's really important. Stay connected to the people you love. Stay connected to the things you love. And if you follow these you know, simple rules, and it's not always easy, I think you can age well. So the book talks about all of these things and the science behind it and the psychology of aging. That just immediately makes me think of, I, I just realized right now how many mentors I have that are older adults. And one of my mentors my whole life and someone who actually married my husband and I, and I think of as a godfather, his name is Meyer Luskin. And he's in his 90s. He's super active at UCLA. You may have heard of him or know him. He still runs his own company and he's 94, 95 now even. And I go to him for advice still. And I learn from him every single time I speak to him. And he's just another example of someone that is thriving at this age that I think is so important to have. I think he and his wife are, you know, they're role models on campus. And um, the more interactions you can have with people like that, I think yes. the, the better you'll be in the long run. You know, when I talk about this book and the mentors a lot, that's kind of where a lot of people would say, oh, well, you should interview this person. Or, or do you know this person? Or you have to talk to this person. And I think it's so interesting that people have so many mentors for old age, yet we have such negative stereotypes about aging. So I think so those things are at odds. And if we can change people's beliefs or pe make people aware that there are things we can do, and sometimes it's just being aware and being around people, that can play an important role in how well we age. Can you share just a quick piece of advice that you learned from Maya Angelou or John Wooden that, that was interesting that we should know. And of course, we should all read your book and learn more about it. I certainly have some great quotes from Maya Angelou in the book that it's hard for me to remember word for word. So I'm not going to try, but John Wooden made it simple for me. I got to interview him in his home in Encino. And towards the end of the interview, he, he kind of tried to make it simple. And he said, really, it comes down to the two most important words and I thought, oh, great, he's going to finally tell me exactly what I need to hear. But <laughs> as a good teacher, he made me guess the words. And uh, I won't put you on the spot. He said, love was the, one of the most important words in the English language. And he said, you know, be around the people you love. He had his wife with him for a long time. She passed away and he still writes her a letter every month and wouldn't sleep on her side of the bed. But he was also surrounded by his huge extended family and all of the players who would come and visit him. And, and Bill Walton was with him on his deathbed, two you know, very unlikely personalities. Right. And the second word was balance. And that's really mm -hmm. where I learned this lesson of both physical and mental balance. And Wooden had a fall at night and fell down and broke his collarbone and lay on the floor for seven or eight hours until his caretaker came in the morning. And he could have easily passed away and died. 
he had a life alert and he could have pressed the button, but as the story goes, he, he didn't use it because he didn't want to bother anyone. And I thought this is really interesting. And that's why the psychology of aging is so interesting. You know, we can have all this technology, we can do these things, but it's really people's mindset and attitude. So I think balance is incredibly important. And Wooden was a great example. And there's other good examples in, in my book. But uh, love and balance. I, I love that. I'm really excited to hear what Maya Angelou says as well. And so we'll have to read your book to find out. But I think that what is so important and why I wanted to bring you on is if we're lucky enough, all of us will age. And it's an important piece of life for all of us. If we are lucky enough that we can get there, we're all going to age. We're all going to go through that process if we can. And so it's important to talk about and very important to talk about at this age in your 30s for me or even younger. And when you teach, you know, college students, because there are things that we can actually do having learned from other people's wisdom. So I think that's so important and thank you so much. And we always wrap up looking up with pulling a card from my things are looking up optimism deck of cards. And if we were together, you'd pull one on your own. But since we're not, I'm going to pull one for you. Mm, Okay. This is your card. It's interesting. Actually, every time I pull a card, it seems like it makes a lot of sense to me after the conversation that we've had. And maybe that's like a brain thing that you just make it make sense, but it always feels like it's the right, right one. So here's yours. Celebrate your small wins just as you would celebrate the big ones. Did you get out of bed today? Win. Did you nourish yourself with any type of food or drink? Win. Did you complete a task you set out to do today? Win. How have you been winning today? Think about it. That's terrific. I think it captures what it means to age well. It's the simple things in life. It's not the, the car or the job or the, you know, the amazing achievements. When people look back on their lives, it's usually the simple things. It's the things that are the regularities. Yeah. You know, seeing the smile of a loved one or the laugh of your children, getting out of bed in the morning. Right. You, know, you said you it. you can do it and not, yeah. and not fall, yeah. um, you're going to have a good day. That's amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, This was so insightful and for making me feel better about my own memory. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I learned a lot. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info on how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.com. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Shaw Day by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.